But what is it distinctively about the Randy Pausch story that galvanized so much attention? For me, it comes down to one word. Honesty. Honesty. And actually, if you've seen the last lecture, you know it's the thing that Randy Pausch leads with. And I'm going to show you just some of the stuff at the beginning right now. He names the elephant in the room. He is honest about it. The book, and I think this is always true, you've heard this, you know, the book is better than the movie. The book is better than the movie in this case because, because there's so much more of his story that we get to see about who he really was, about who Randy Pouch was and the kind of life they lived. He tells a vignette. The book is actually about, I think, 62, maybe 65 little vignettes. And one of them is called The Truth Will Set You Free. And he's talking about after the time that he had moved with his family after the actual last lecture had already occurred. And he was with his family and they were living in that house in Virginia, in Chesapeake. And there's a lot of military families around there. And he was headed home one day and he was speeding. And a police officer pulled him over and the cop said, uh, seeing his Pennsylvania driver's license still, he said, you with the military? You, you, know, you visiting here? And he said, no. And he said, well, you know, basically, what are you doing here? And he thought, I'm telling the truth. I've got about a few months to live. I've got pancreatic cancer and I'm dying, he says with a smile on his face. And the cop sort of steps back and says, is he trying to get out of this ticket? Is he telling me the truth? So Randy Pouch does him one better and he lifts up his shirt and he shows him the network of scars from his surgeries. And the cop says, have a good day and slow down. Chris Christopherson put it this way, freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. There is that place in approaching the ultimate things, in approaching the end of his life, where there can be liberation, where we can focus on just what the truth of our lives is and absolutely let the rest of it go. None of us seek out the kind of trials like Randy Pausch had to go through. But if they find us in one form or another, they will. We want to be prepared to be able to respond with our best selves, with the better angels of our nature. And spiritually, that's the work of a lifetime. I like the interview that was done with the Dalai Lama a number of years ago. And he was asked, what are you going to do with the next phase of your life? And he shot back immediately without even thinking about it because it was just so natural to him. I'm going to prepare for my death. Going to prepare for my death. Randy Pausch does not seek death and neither does the Dalai Lama. He is not grateful for his cancer. And actually, one of the reasons I really like the book even more than the video of the last lecture is because it gives that whole picture of his life. He tells about the stories when he is by himself, when he's no longer up on the stage and he's in his shower and he weeps openly, not for what he will miss about his children's lives, although he will miss it, but he weeps for the fact that his kids will not have him around. There is a beautiful moment, and again, we only know about it after the fact. We don't really see it, or we can't really tell what's going on in the video. But after the last lecture is completed, Jay, his wife, um, and actually I'll be getting to this in a couple weeks, it's about how to enable the dreams of other people, how to equip other people to live their dreams. And he has everyone there sing happy birthday to her, because her birthday was the day before. And they're all applauding, and a lot of people are crying, and she comes up on stage, and they kiss once in the lips, and the second time on the cheek, and she whispers in his ear, you know, hope against hope in a heartbreaking way. Please don't die. Can't change the cards you're dealt as, as they know. But still, we hear that tension in the book, the tough stuff. And also what we hear in the book that as Randy Pausch is preparing to die, it is so sad. 
But what we hear is the sound of gratitude in our ears. We hear his gratitude. See, he didn't have a deathbed conversion he talks about in the last lecture, but he does have a deathbed perspective and reveals his life and his love with an even greater clarity than he could have wished for before. It's almost as if as his life force runs out, it strengthens. It gathers its final strength, almost like a supernova before it explodes and extinguishes. You know, it just gathers all its force to itself and shines as brightly as it will ever shine. It brings out all his power. It heightens his powers of perception and his powers of appreciation and even his powers of perspective for those things that he still has yet to learn. I love he gives two examples in the book. One, he says he did a lot of virtual reality um, uh, computer work in his entire life, and so he had to work with a lot of artists. And he said whenever he heard this phrase from artists, it just has to come out of me. You know, artists say, it just has to come out of me. I feel called to say it. He always, the skeptical scientist in him, always sort of stepped back and said, that sounds really self-indulgent. But he said that actually, he did, after he completed his last lecture, he knew what that felt like for the first time. That it almost wasn't his choice to have to share his words with us and with his kids as a record of who he was. It had to come out of him. And the second thing that he learned, I love this in terms of the enlarging of his perspective, is that he said as a scientist, he used to love to work in the world of black or white, either this or either that. And so he loved two crayons his entire life, the black crayon or the white crayon. He thought you could do everything you need to on a piece of paper and coloring with just the black and the white crayon. But he said as he approached the end of his life, he started to see that, in fact, there were many, many Shades, many shades of gray and many shades of different kinds of colors. And so he reached into literally at times the different crayons in there that were not black and white as he started to color his life, even at its end, with richer hues. See, the presence of death can, doesn't always, but can announce the presence of life more fully. I remember this every time I look out my window. Every time I look out my window, I remember that something can be revealed even in loss. You see, we moved into our high-rise apartment on the sixth floor in Chestnut Hill in the summertime. And we are really the only high-rise in our neighborhood. And so we overlook a large area that I assume to be absolutely just a canopy of beautiful forested trees. It's just a lush green canopy. But I got an October surprise when we got to fall. Once all those leaves started falling off, you know what I saw there? A neighborhood. (laughs) A neighborhood, and actually for the first time last night, it's been so windy the last few days, almost all the trees right now are stripped clean and stripped bare, except just for just a few down at the bottom. And I saw all these beautiful little twinkling lights out there on the horizon as far as it could extend. All the lights of all those lives and all the houses down there that I did not assume to be there when we first arrived in town. Hidden from view can be some of the things in our life until we experience loss. Those dying trees revealed what was always there, which was the life beneath. That absence called attention to the life that is underfoot. I think calling attention to the life that is under our feet, literally under our feet, is the core of all the spiritual practices and all the spiritual disciplines. It gets to one of my favorite stories in the scripture, which is that when Moses meets God for the first time, and he's about to receive the law, in big quotes, the law, the divine has a very odd request for Moses. Take off your shoes. Take off your shoes. 
Now, I have to admit, someone who grew up Jewish, I know there are a lot of very odd requests in the Hebrew scriptures. <laughs> For example, football out, not supposed to play with the pig's bladder. Rock badger, don't eat it. It's not kosher. So I'm wondering what's going on here. Is this sort of kosher, legalistic footwork, uh, footwear kind of thing? And actually, to really make this real for you, I was going to ask all of you today to take off your shoes while you were listening to my message. But then I figured, you know, all this talk about death was making you uncomfortable enough, even without having to worry, do my feet stink? So you can leave your shoes on today. But why? Why that original question? Why remove your shoes? Because I think the holy is inviting Moses to say, this encounter you are about to have, this experience of ultimacy you are about to enter into, feel it. Feel it. Take off your shoes. Think about sticking your toes in the sand when you get to the ocean, when you get to the beach. Think about that feeling, how visceral, how real it is. We're not trying to escape that vulnerability. We're not trying to escape that connection, but instead staying connected to it. What the divine is saying here, and I love the way the scriptures talk about this, is basically feel it, don't run from it. And the same is true as we encounter and approach death. Those who are truly alive while they die, they teach us so much. They teach us so much. And actually, in honor of Randy Pausch, I wanted to share a mathematical equation with you today that I did not write, but I conceived. That is, and a friend of mine who's a research scientist, he did this for me, the fear of death is inversely proportional to the love of life. (laughs) The fear of death is inversely proportional to the love of life. And if you got that wrong, don't take it up with me. Take it up with him. I'll give you his email. (laughs) That is absolutely true. Our fear of death, our inability to encounter the ultimate or the ultimate that is seen in the end is directly correlated with our ability not to love our lives if we are fearful. See, those who spend their entire lives afraid of death are actually mourning their lives rather than living them. This is an irony that's expressed in the beginning of the movie Annie Hall. Woody Allen is talking about his philosophy of life. Not a happy one. I don't recommend it. He's talking about there's an old joke about a couple in the Catskills, in the Catskill Mountains, and those old resorts that my dad worked at in the 40s and 50s when he was a teenager. And it's about two people sitting there, these vacationers, and they are really, really miserable. And they're complaining, complaining, complaining about the quality of the food. And one says it's, it's awful, it's cold, and it's bland, and when it has taste, the taste is bad. And the other person's nodding in agreement. Yes, 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 I absolutely agree. And the portions are so small. It's so awful, and yet there's not enough of it. (laughs) You get the moral. That we live life only resenting its end. We resent the portion that we are given. And we see life only through a prism that reveals, not the colors, but our resentment that life has to come to a close. But rather, that prism can reveal not just the end, but also shine back to us the inherent beauty and goodness of the life that we have. In this, there is freedom to claim in our end, claim what matters and let the rest go. Claim what is ultimate and say the rest just does not matter. And Randy Powell sort of puts this question implicitly before all of us in the last lecture. Why don't we do this more? Why don't we do this more, sort of separate out, segregate out what really is ultimate 
from what doesn't matter at all. Those of us who are not actively dying right now. Maybe we're afraid. Maybe we're afraid of looking the fool or letting the mask fall down or resting, having to rest vulnerably in that amazing combination of fate, luck, and grace that have handed us our lives. Or maybe it's this, is that if we are going to admit day after day, week after week, that what is ultimate really matters, we will have to be responsible for our dreams. We will have to be responsible to our dreams. And that, in that, is also one of the secrets of why Randy Pausch had so many lessons to share. See, because he was living his dreams, his childhood dreams, all the way up through his life. And so when his end came, he didn't have to grasp anxiously at the lessons. They were right there for him to share. And he keeps on learning as well. I love this particular story, he says. The last lecture was given, as many of you know, at Carnegie Mellon University, where he was an absolutely beloved university professor. And in fact, some years before, he had gotten his Ph.D. at Carnegie Mellon University in computer science. But he reveals in the book that he was turned down for application when he first applied to Carnegie Mellon. He was rejected. And he talks about this as one of the turning points in his life because what happens is that thanks to his undergraduate mentor and his own pluck, his own inability to sometimes give up hope, and also his ability to think clearly and humbly on his feet when he gets the second interview and they rethink, rethink their choice and indeed let him in. He thinks of that as one of those moments when there was nothing else he could say but one thing, and that one thing turned out to be exactly the right thing that he would say. This is one of those turning points in his life, he says, and he wonders in the book why he never revealed that until he was dying. Why didn't he ever talk about that until this point? Perhaps it was ego, perhaps it was fear, perhaps it was feeling that this place that was so beloved to him and by him and through him and because of him maybe didn't accept him right at the start. And he thought, maybe I'm really not smart enough to be here. But he knows that story, so much about hope and humility and accepting help when it's offered to us is right at the core of what his life means. His death made him so, to use the quotes, over that. Over the ego and over the fear and over wondering or worrying about what people might think if he revealed the truth of his life. And he said, you know what? Basically, if I had to do over again, I would have been over that a long time ago. So I'm going to take his advice today and tell you one of the things in my life, one of the hinges upon which my life turns and upon which and through which I found so much significant in my life today, one of those pivot points. And I tell this story with Teresa's explicit permission. (laughs) It is one of those events that did not start out auspiciously for me. And we now refer to it in the mythology of our marriage, in the mythology of our loving relationship, as the seven-hour phone call. (laughs) Seriously. We were a couple dates in to our sort of budding relationship, and, you know, I'd... I'm be a little goofy here. I would sort of come back, you know, feeling all wonderful and sort of really chargeful and do a little dance like after our, you know, we, you know, after our first dates. And I was just loving life because I was, you know, falling in love with this woman here. And she gave me a call after a couple dates in and we'd had a date the night before that I thought went in splendidly well. And I could tell there was a little bit of a hesitancy in her voice when she called me. And there was a little bit of a we need to talk tone. And I immediately translated that as, she's really not that into you. 
And in fact, what Teresa revealed was some, as I now understand it, fear, a little uncertainty, understandably, a little uncertainty about perhaps this cusp of this commitment that we were about to make. And I got to tell you what happened in my mind when she started telling me about where she was. My mind snapped right into, I am 16 years old and I have red hair and glasses. I'm not very tall and I'm not very strong. And damn, this is another girl rejecting me. Well, pity, pity, pity. I know it's awful. (laughs) Tiny violin, tiny violin. And I got to tell you, I felt that self-righteous anger starting to well up. You know, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to think that we are getting rejected, and that's not actually what was happening. But that's what I felt. That's what I felt. And I felt that sour grapes taste in my mouth a little bit. You know, you know, you start to start to say, I'm about to get hurt, so I didn't really want I didn't really want what I wanted anyway. You know, I didn't really want it. And so I was all prepared to maybe respond to what I perceived to be some words that were disappointing with my own words of disappointment. And I remembered, and I referred to this last week, I remembered my favorite definition of what redemption is. It is to be in the same circumstance that you have found yourself before in life, but to have learned the lesson and to do it differently this time. (laughs) I was not going to respond with anger. Not this time. And we started talking. We started listening to each other. Underneath the uncertainty, I heard the fear. I heard that maybe I was, you know, rare for me to do this, haha, pushing a little bit too quickly. <laughs> and then I came to these words, probably the most important words I have ever said in my life. If your tolerance for your ambivalence and your feelings can match my tolerance for the ambiguity of the situation we are about to encounter and embark upon, then I think we've got something we can work with here. Laid the smack down. (laughs) See, Teresa loves words. And I knew the minute I got that out of my mouth, I mean, come on, I just used ambivalence and ambiguity well in the same sentence to make a really deep emotional point. Well, as they say after that, the rest is history. And we talked for seven hours that night, and we've been together ever since, and you have one hell of a song leader as well. So I try to get over myself by listening to Randy Pausch. <laughs> try to get over the things in which, you know, I don't feel so competent or so confident. When we listen to the dying, we learn to tell the deeper truth about each and every one of our lives. All of us do. And all of you can. Anne Lamott, the spiritual writer, her therapist said to her once when she was really struggling about how to relate to a friend of hers who was dying, the therapist said these words. Watch her carefully right now. Excuse me. Watch her carefully right now because she's teaching you how to live. To live as if we are dying gives us a chance to experience some real presence. Some real presence. This Friday, I'm going to take a little mini pilgrimage to New York City and go see one of my mentors, Forrest Church. I know many of you know his name, and I've referred to him before, UU Minister. 
gave my start in ministry, believed in me before I really believed in myself. And he's dying of cancer, and actually he seems to be getting more months than we thought he would have at all. And so I just recognized just yesterday, I need to just send him an email and say, can I spend some time with you? And he said, absolutely. So next Friday, I'm going to go up and see him. Forrest has the most elegant and I think the most true definition of what religion really is. Religion is our response to the dual reality of being alive and having to die. Religion is our response to the dual reality of being alive and having to die. In the last lecture, and again, one of the reasons why I love the book so much, we get to hear a little bit more of his story, Randy Pausch's story, and also his spiritual story. He tells us a time when, as it's clear, his death is really going to be advancing pretty quickly, that a friend of his told him what the spiritual teacher Krishnamurti had said. And it was really encouraging this person not to be alone. Krishnamurti uh, taught that when someone you love is dying, part of you dies too. And so part of you goes with them as they go into that great mystery into which all of our lives will go. Part of me, just a little part, is experiencing death right now. You know, Forrest is definitely one of my father figures. And, you know, whenever you lose anyone who's ever functioned as a parent for you, it hurts. But I also know that part of me goes with him. And thousands, thousands of people whose lives have been touched by him, their little parts of their deaths go with him as well, too. You've heard me probably say this before. I am a hopeful agnostic about the great beyond with the emphasis upon the hopeful part. But I also very much believe, and Forrest quoted Thoreau a couple of years ago, who Thoreau very much did believe that there was this transcendent element to life. But Thoreau also said this, that he prefer that he would take it one life at a time. He would prefer to take it one life at a time. This life here first, and then whatever is next, we will face. But what about, not so much the worrying about then, but about the here and now? Those times when we have to say those awful, premature goodbyes. Where do we find and how do we find the spirit, the grace, the sense of God, the holy, when we are at those moments when we've reached our limits? I return again to the Hebrew Scriptures, probably my favorite single story. It's about the prophet Elijah. And just like in ancient Israel, as they like to do in almost every society for all time, and hopefully we'll stop this, but they like to kill their prophets because their prophets told too much truth. And so Elijah had fled out of the city, and he's out in a cave, I believe, in Mount Horeb. And the spirit, so says the word, I don't take this literally, but I take the truth absolutely meaningfully. The spirit of God sort of came and found Elijah in Mount Horeb. He said, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah responds honestly, I'm fleeing because they come to take my life. I want to be safe. And it's interesting, the voice of the divine, as the Israelites heard it, didn't respond and say, go back and do your duty. Go back and take your obligation. You're a prophet, damn it. Do what you're supposed to. He says, go out of the cave. Stand outside the cave at the mouth of the cave. For the Spirit of the Lord is about to come by. And we see, we see in the text, a hurricane, a huge hurricane that shook the space outside the mountain come by. And then the phrase, and the Lord was not in the hurricane. And then an earthquake that shook the earth. And the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then a huge consuming fire. And then the phrase, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then finally, Elijah hears, 
a still, small voice. A still, small voice. And we don't hear, and the Lord was in the still, small voice. It doesn't work that way. It's almost a Zen-like story, I think, in that we have to think beyond our preconceptions in order to get the message. And that's what I like here. This is actually sort of a funny, ironic story, because a lot of the big stuff, the big God stuff that the God in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures does, is big God stuff, hurricanes and floods and fires. But I think this is a different understanding. Here, it's not, the presence is not in the power, but in the sheer presence in that feeling that Elijah gets in the still, small voice. And the story concludes, Elijah, what are you doing here? I am here because they have come to take my life. It's the same as it was before. He's facing death. But Elijah leaves the cave. And he returns to life. He returns to who he is. See, the divine is not known in the reasons, and the divine is not known in the power. It's experienced in the presence and then expressed in the courage of Elijah to go and face his life, a life that includes death. Those that face death, all of us, we learn how to live. We can learn how to live more deeply. Forrest's book, the final book he will ever write, is called, very simply, Love and Death. I want to encourage you to read it. Love and Death, my valley, my journey through the valley of the shadow. And in it, he brings up a concept that I had never heard before. And he talks about his teachers, those who have taught him in the past, in his ministry, how to die now that he is doing so. Have you ever the concept of an ethical will? It's very different from you know, the legal will that you need to fill out in terms of where your property is going. This is more like where your purpose is and where's your personality going. A dying parishioner named Michael, in his 30s, many years ago, dying of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, he left an ethical will to his children that Forrest read. And it's simply called, I love you forever. And it was his ethical statement, his spiritual statement to his kids. I mean, it talked about fun stuff, the particulars of who he was. That his favorite food, kids don't forget this, was chicken parmesan. That his favorite color, at least at the moment of writing this ethical will, was blue. And his favorite holiday was Christmas. Because he got to give gifts. And then he said these words. Take care of one another. Walk away from trouble. Use your time in school wisely. Think before you speak. Always ask for help. And kids, don't forget, always eat the best part first. <laughs> I'll repeat that list. Take care of each other. Walk away from trouble. Use your time in school wisely. Think before you speak. Always ask for help. And always eat the best part first. What I'd encourage all of you here to do today is to write your ethical will. What is the, and what are the essentials, the ultimate, as you understand it right here and right now? And then, knowing the ultimate, can we let the rest drop away? If we listen to the teachers, the great teachers who understand what is ultimate in life, 
we will make sense of what the Dalai Lama said. And we will start making preparations now. And so we will be able to face the ultimate then, whenever it is. And we will have the courage. The courage, the virtue that underlies every true virtue there is. To take the step, and then the step, and then the step, and then the step after that. And we will know that we will have walked through life in love. And that, that is why we will be teachers one day when it's our time as well. Amen. May you live in blessings.